If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts once again as we uh, return uh, to our series uh, through the book of Acts. And we are in chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 in just a moment, read through uh, the end of that chapter. Again, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 26. What we are seeing as we make our progress uh, through this particular book is we see the fulfilling of the Great Commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we find at uh, the end of the gospel this commission, and we find it somewhat repeated in a slightly different form at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, that those that are going to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that would be His disciples, uh, were going to begin there in Jerusalem, and then they would move uh, into uh, Samaria, and then all the way into the uh, furthest uh, points upon the globe. And certainly today, as we look at uh, this very unique, very dynamic uh, account of, of the conversion of a, a man of Ethiopia, we see both uh, in real terms and in symbolic terms that the gospel is going to the furthest reaches of uh, the known world. And so, we see as we make our progress that God's Holy Spirit is at work. Well, how is He at work? He is work at work through the ministry of the Word, through the proclamation of this gospel, of the testimony to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, they went, and now we go, and we go uh, obediently as they did, we go expectantly as they did. We go soberly as they did. We go dependently as they did. And we go confidently as they did, knowing that as we go into the world, that we are both fulfilling uh, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we have indeed His approval to do so. And so if you will read with me as we look at this account of uh, this conversion story, this testimony to the proclamation of the gospel, and what uh, you could say is uh, uh, the conversion or the salvation of what seems to be a, a very eager convert. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and, and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading uh, the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join uh, this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come and uh, come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, 
before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, uh, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he uh, passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word uh, as they were so long ago, uh, we still confess we are dependent upon your word and your spirit. Uh, God, give us understanding. Help us to speak with uh, clarity. Help us to speak with accuracy, uh, both here and the places that you would send any of us, each of us out uh, to speak of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would be at work, again, bringing many to salvation uh, through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us as we have gathered here today. And Lord, as always, we would pray that those who need conviction, that they would receive conviction. And those that need comfort, we pray that they would uh, receive comfort from your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This particular section of the book of Acts is somewhat transitional. We're going to uh, be moving from the uh, focus uh, upon those apostles who had gathered in Jerusalem after the resurrection, after the ascension of our Lord. Uh, they have gathered in uh, Jerusalem and they awaited the Holy Spirit and He has arrived in all of His fullness creating what we see today as uh, the church of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have seen that they uh, were faithful uh, to preaching and teaching uh, the truth of the Word of God with a view toward at their, their, their lens through which they interpreted was the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did that publicly and they did it privately. As we came to chapter 5, uh, we saw once again uh, the conflicts uh, that were uh, going to be uh, a part of the life of the church, conflicts that are just as real today as they were 2,000 years ago. That is, uh, there are conflicts that arise internally uh, within the church, and there are conflicts that come to the church from those of outside uh, the church. And we always need to be uh, aware of, of that type of affliction, of that kind of trouble, even that type of, of persecution that uh, God uh, God's good news in His Son, Jesus Christ, does not promise to deliver us uh, from uh, the affliction that comes to, to us specifically because of the gospel or the affliction that comes to us generally because we live in a fallen uh, world. And then in chapter 6, we're introduced to these uh, seven men who were chosen for a unique ministry uh, to see uh, that the widows, particularly the Hebraic women, 
uh, or excuse me, the, the, the Greek, Grecian women, uh, the, uh, the, they, the, those widows would be, uh, would be cared for, that, that, that they uh, would receive their portion uh, from a, a certain allotment that they utilized uh, to care for these widows. And we really don't see that they are charged with a teaching or preaching ministry. But lo and behold, in chapters 7 and 8, two of that seven, two of that number, rise to very prominent roles within the church, speaking, proclaiming, teaching and preaching uh, the Word of God, proclaiming the gospel Stephen unto death, and Philip leading uh, the way into Samaria, again, in fulfillment of that which Christ charged them uh, to do. And so last time we saw uh, the effect of the gospel in Samaria, and now we're going to see uh, a person uh, from the furthest reaches of the known world is going to come under the sound of the gospel, and we believe that he is converted by the work of the Spirit, again, upon hearing uh, this gospel. And so let's begin in verse uh, 26. We see that Philip is going to receive instructions from one identified as the uh, angel uh, of the Lord. And uh, Luke is, is quite interested in this type of uh, heavenly messenger. He really doesn't give us a, a lot of details, just simply says this happened and this was uh, the message. And so uh, Philip uh, receives these messages or this message and he is obedient uh, to that. Now, we've made a point from time to time that there are certain aspects of the book of Acts that are uh, typically not normative for the church today. And so we affirm and we believe in the necessity and the reality of the Spirit's leadership. Okay, The Spirit does still lead, although I would question whether someone receives a, a direct command from one identified as the angel of the Lord. But again, the Spirit is active in the life of the believer, and He is active uh, directing us and giving us understanding to the message and giving us insight as to how uh, we should minister in, uh, in each and uh, every situation. And so uh, the Spirit is necessary to continue His work in the life of the believer towards sanctification. Uh, toward uh, power and boldness and courage and all of these things that we're needed to go out into a, a world that needs to hear uh, the gospel. And then certainly as we see it in such, uh, such, such bold print here that we're dependent that the Spirit would even be ahead of us uh, at work in, in the heart and the minds of those who need to hear uh, this, this gospel and how we uh, could wish that, uh, uh, that as we left here today, uh, that we would find multiple chariots, chariots filled uh, with those from every tribe and nation that were reading a portion of a text uh, that we could engage them with the gospel message at that point. For whatever suits the purposes of God, uh, He typically doesn't tee it up quite uh, so, uh, so well for us in this day. But to be sure, there are those that are being prepared, and those that need to hear the gospel. And we are indeed 
that spokesperson, that mouthpiece, uh, to go and to speak uh, the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Philip goes, he's going to take a, a, a road south, presumably from Jerusalem. If you, if you look back to verse 25, there's a they uh, there. Uh, it's a little bit unclear, does the they include uh, Philip? Uh, and they journey back from Samaria to Jerusalem, and then uh, Philip is going to leave Jerusalem and go south. Or uh, was it just those apostles that had gone to Samaria that go back to Jerusalem and Philip was directed from some other place? Whatever the case uh, may be, uh, Philip understands uh, this particular call, this particular assignment, and he is to, to go and he is to minister. And as he is going in obedience, uh, taking uh, this road uh, that goes south uh, to, uh, uh, through, uh, from Jerusalem, and he's going to Gaza, he encounters one described as an Ethiopian eunuch. Just kind of interestingly enough, one of the things that when you hear people groups mentioned in the Bible, one good place to just kind of go back and, and, and see some information is to go back and look at the table of nations uh, that we have in Genesis chapter 10. And you will see the different various groups and uh, the lands that they went to. And if, you, if you're really good with your Hebrew, uh, you can figure out a lot of places where the people of the groups that, that dot the world actually come from. And so uh, the people of Ethiopia, sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as Cush, or descendants of Noah's son uh, Ham. And, and so likely... This was a person uh, with dark skin, a, a, a black person. Now, not necessarily so, but most likely uh, that would be uh, the case. And, you know, as you reflect uh, upon that, uh, Jews typically hated Samaritans and they hated Gentiles. I, I, I'm not sure the color of his skin uh, was an issue uh, that the, the default setting of the Jews is they would have despised all Gentiles, whether they were red, green, purple, you know, whatever, whatever they were. Uh, there would not have been a real openness to entering into fellowship uh, with uh, a Gentile. And so we're told here in the text, beginning in the last part of, of 27, several things about this uh, Ethiopian, uh, that he was uh, a eunuch, and that is probably a, a physical, actual reality. There, there are some occasions where that term was applied uh, to court officials because this particular practice uh, was pretty universal in the ancient world, uh, but uh, whether he was, was or wasn't physically a eunuch, he's identified that way, and I happen to believe that he was actually physically uh, a, a eunuch, and because again, it's part of the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the church and the gospel. So he was a a eunuch, and one who, by Old Testament law, specifically Deuteronomy twenty three, would have been forbidden from entering into uh, the the uh, the temple. And so, that while as we'll see here in a minute, he was attracted to Judaism, to the Word of God, but that very Word was a, a barrier to his full participation in uh, the people of God. So he is a, an Ethiopian, he's a eunuch, and he's a court official of Candace. Now, my translation capitalizes Candace as though it were a name. 
probably, I think the majority of commentators say probably this was more of a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar, not necessarily a personal name, but that this Ethiopian eunuch was in service to the queen of Ethiopia, who was probably more active as the head of state as in Ethiopia at this time, the king was regarded uh, as a god and didn't really get his hands dirty with the day-to-day affairs of, of state. And so this was a, a high-ranking uh, official uh, to the queen of the Ethiopians. In fact, he was in charge of all her treasure. So secretary of the treasury or whatever title you want to ascribe to him. But he was a man of great importance and, and presumably of, of, of a certain type of, of means that he's traveling in a chariot. Uh, suggest that, that he, he was at least associated uh, with wealth uh, and uh, affluence. And the Bible, I, I've never counted this up, and so I don't know, but obviously you have certain places in the Bible where there are really serious and profound warnings about material wealth, the, the danger, the way it can trick and trip you up. Uh, and then uh, on occasion we, we see that, Indeed, not only can the gospel save uh, poor people, but the gospel can save uh, well-off people. The, not only the down and out, but the up and in type folks is kind of the cliche uh, goes. So, uh, he's a man uh, of great power, of great recognition, and he had gone to Jerusalem uh, to, to worship. So, either he was... He probably wasn't a full-scale proselyte, would be my guess. He was probably more of what might be called a God-fearer. There are certain things that uh, would have prohibited him from being uh, fully included uh, in uh, the the old covenant uh, people. But probably through the the Jews that had been dispersed over uh, the years because of the various ways that uh, invading nations had persecuted them and sent them out into the nations, this particular man uh, came under uh, the teachings of what we call our Old Testament, and he was attracted to that. Many times pagans were just attracted uh, to, to the, uh, the morality uh, that was prescribed in the Old Testament, uh, not to even mention the, the Old Testament God and the Old Testament concept of worship. And so sometimes you'll hear me speak of, of individuals that uh, were a part of Judaism uh, as old covenant saints. Okay, That is, they were actually regenerate even under the old covenant. And the moment they saw Jesus, guess what? Uh, they recognized who he was. Uh, this, is prob- this is probably not a regenerate person as we find him in the story. He, he's interested in Judaism, but he hasn't come to a saving knowledge of God and certainly not the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ uh, into the world. And so Philip goes in obedience. He goes to this very strange and probably desolate place, maybe even in his mind wondering why am I traveling this probably not particularly uh, well-traveled road. And he encounters this particular Ethiopian who had been uh, in Jerusalem. And so we see in uh, verse uh, 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, again, uh, we can get into that that debate about, you know, God told me to tell you type stuff. Suffice it to say, 
God told Philip what to do here, whether it was audible, whether it was uh, something that was just impressed upon his heart. Uh, again, uh, Philip heard and he obeyed. And evidently there, were, there was really not this, well, wait a minute, he's got, he's got guards all around him and, and, and if I go approach his chariot, somebody's going to run a spear right through me. No, he goes knowing the way has been uh, prepared uh, for him. And it says he ran to him. I, you know, it's hard to know exactly uh, how this uh, took place in the sense had, had Philip stopped, stopped, stopped for a rest, uh, was the fact Philip was on foot and a, a chariot would travel faster than a man on foot would, and maybe the chariot passed him on the road, and, and God says, you need to go chase that chariot down. Whatever the case may be, uh, he was obedient to the Word of God. He approaches uh, this uh, chariot and he asked them, or or, excuse me, as as he ran up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, as I say, wouldn't it be a great thing is every time you went out in the community, somebody was, had a Bible open, reading it now and 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 here's the thing in the ancient world it would have been normative it would have been normative for a person reading even for himself to read aloud and of course philip is astute enough he recognizes the particular text uh, that the eunuch is reading from so he could hear him reading the word of god and he asks him uh, a question there, if you look there in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? Now, probably in our hypersensitive context that we live in today, where everything you say and every question you ask is, is, is a, you know, a, a, an offense, that, that, you, that he is not indicting this man's intellect or anything like that, but he is asking him a question for the sake of engaging him uh, in a witness. Now, I've mentioned this before in doing uh, personal evangelism. The genius, typically, at least in my view, of some of the evangelistic tools and techniques that various programs use is what they call the diagnostic question. In EE, it goes something like this. Uh, if you were to die tonight and stood before the door of heaven, what would you say to uh, St. Peter or whoever's guarding the gate? Why should I let you come in? And if you answer, well, you know, I'm really a great guy. I, I've, I've, I've really been a good person. Uh, then uh, you know that that person is not relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, faith evangelism. Ask a similar question. What in your opinion? does it take for a person to have his sins forgiven and enter into heaven? Uh, When we think of the way of the master, very popular uh, personal evangelist technique, uh, are you a good person? What's the answer? What? No. No. There are none righteous. No, not one. But when someone says, well, yes, I am a good person, then there's follow-up questions. You ever told a lie? Yeah, okay. You, you understand. Uh, the, but what you're trying to do, you're probing the heart of the individual for the sake of presenting uh, the gospel. And so very simply, he, he asked, you know, do, do you understand? 
And when I think through this, and I've, I've mentioned this before, my predecessor at Centercrest, a gentleman by the name of Bob Curley, very faithful to, to go out and go to people's houses and witness to them. And I can, those of you that know Brother Bob, I can just see him, you know, his hands in his pocket, just kind of slouched. And, hey, tell me a little bit about your religious experience. Just non-threatening as you can be. You know, most of us, we're ready to fight, aren't we? Yeah, I'm going to put my foot right here on your throat. You're going to listen to me, right? No, no, just, hey, tell me a little bit about where you're coming from. Why? Well, first of all, I want you to know I'm not here to shove something down your throat. And number two, I want to discern where do we need to enter the story, okay? And, and so uh, Philip asks the question, and, and the Ethiopian uh, replies uh, to the, the question. He, he, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? A very distinct reference to what, was, what existed under the Old Covenant. One of the, the, the blessings of the New Covenants is that those of us that are members of the New Covenant community, we don't need a teacher. And I think you all understand where that goes. It doesn't mean there's no need for a preacher or those to instruct. But, but that, that the Spirit of God has so worked in every New Covenant member that is distinct and different and more powerful than what the Spirit did under the Old Covenant so that, they, that, that every New Covenant member, by definition, understands the gospel. Okay, Maybe some have more clarity than others, but they come to an understanding and an appreciation of, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this eunuch was interested in the God of the Old Testament, but because he was unregenerate, he really did not have a grasp of what was going on in the particular text that he was reading. His, his interest had probably uh, been fanned into flame while he was in Jerusalem. And so as he returns home, he is reading uh, from uh, the scroll that maybe he had even purchased uh, while he was in uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so we see uh, in verse uh, uh, 32 also the the inset if you if you've got a, a study bible of any type you should see the end of uh, verse 32 and verse 33 is an offset type of print which tells us it is a quote from the old testament the particular passage is isaiah 53 we refer to it often and again the psalm or the song of the suffering servant now again how much so would we love to go out with the intent of evangelism and find somebody reading aloud from the Old Testament the passage that clearly depicts, prophesies the suffering of our Savior? And to go from there and to explain uh, exactly what that passage uh, means. And so we see it uh, there. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humilia humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away uh, from the earth. Now, one of the things that was, that was going on in the contemporary understanding of that passage, in other words, the, uh, the scribes and Pharisees of, of ancient uh, Judaism, as many might have said, and I know that contemporary Jews go down this route to some extent, that the suffering servant is speaking of, it's describing the plight 
of the nation of Israel. The, the nation was the suffering servant, okay? And that's, that's not the case. And so uh, uh, we understand that the passage is actually referring, it is prophesying the suffering, particularly the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross uh, at Calvary. And so the New Testament church very quickly came to understand that this is a prophetic scripture speaking of Jesus. Uh, they interpreted probably in light of Mark 10:45, as Jesus himself said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ser- served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so uh, uh, they came to understand This is a prophecy uh, regarding uh, Jesus. And so the eunuch, look at verse 34, begins to ask Philip about this. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And Philip takes the opportunity to respond to that question to speak of Jesus, to speak of the gospel. In a way very similar to, to what Jesus did, as Luke records in Luke 24, the, the, those that journeyed with him on the Emmaus Road, they, they didn't understand uh, why it is that Jesus, uh, their Messiah, had suffered and died on that particular uh, weekend. And, and, and so, if you remember, Jesus pauses with them at their home, and he begins to explain the gospel, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ from the Old Testament Scripture. Now, they were described as disciples. This eunuch is not a disciple, okay? But Philip is going to enter into the gospel story and begin to give a a full accounting of the person and work, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll hear us uh, use the term kerygma, okay? He is going to explain the gospel, and the gospel is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going to take other Old Testament scriptures. Remember, he doesn't have the New Testament at this time. He's taking the Old Testament, and he is proving uh, the Christ. Going all the way back uh, to uh, the Old Testament, he uh, probably, and we don't, you know, it'd be great to have all the information, but I can imagine that he began to speak as uh, uh, Jesus as that sheep, as that final sacrifice. He was led to the slaughter. He's the sheep, and he's the good shepherd that has laid down his life uh, for his sheep. He's going, he goes willingly. He's, ta- he's taken unjustly, and he is the final effective sacrifice. That, that what you heard of in Jerusalem was a whole series of animal sacrifices, and now there is no need for those sacrifices. In fact, they have no value at all because the, the sacrifice that all of those sacrifices anticipated has now been offered in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the sacrificial system is finished because it is finished in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now there's not going to be these barriers between Jew and Gentile. There's not going to be the barrier because you're a unique. You can be a full, included member of the community of people known as the church, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the gospel was designed to cross every barrier. And so I I can imagine that uh, Philip went back even all the way to the rebellion 
of Adam and Eve and how all men in all places at all times became sinners. It reminded me as I kind of reflected this week. A few years ago there was a big brouhaha controversy. One of the most popular pastors uh, in the country. Pastors one of the biggest churches. Uh, you, you have heard his name, Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley. He made this great pronouncement that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe he thought we need to present Jesus and not let people get bogged down and on uh, not wearing blended fabrics or you know, not eating food produced by hybrid seed or not eating sh- Maybe, maybe. But as he was pressed on it, he kept doubling down. And so what he meant was what? We need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. It doesn't really have any relevance. But it is through our understanding of creation and rebellion that we see with clarity the universal need of a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. That the Old Testament prepares the way and prophesies of this Savior in His name is Jesus Christ. We in no way, no shape, no fashion need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to be knowledgeable and we need to understand how it functioned in Old Testament Israel and how it functions and continues to function uh, today. And so I'm quite sure that this man uh, was a believer at some level in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a believer in the God of the patriarchs. But he needed to come to understand how Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises even made to Abraham of one who would bless all of the nations. That indeed Jesus was this promised son from David's house. He is the perfect, the final prophet, uh, priest, and king who does make a sacrifice that is effective uh, to save. And so the man had a, a lot of information. But he lacked the lens of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably would have agreed with Philip on a great deal of moral issues and all of these things. But he did not know the Savior. And so Philip most assuredly in explaining the gospel, the kerygma, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then called upon this man uh, to... Uh, repent and believe the gospel. It had such an effect upon the man, look at verse 36, that the man asked of Philip, and they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? He was probably fully aware of the barriers that were in place as both a Gentile and a eunuch that prohibited from being a, a fully accepted member in the household of God. And so here we see what? That those barriers have been removed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God is going to indeed save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, we sometimes talk about the exclusive nature of the gospel and the inclusive nature of the gospel. And they're both true. Uh, That is, uh, the gospel excludes any other means or way of salvation, any other Savior, but it is inclusive in that it is to go into all people in all places at all times. And now, anytime we use the term, and this is kind of a popular buzzword, inclusiveness, okay? Now, 
was it a sin for this man to be black? He didn't need to repent of being black. That's who he was, okay? He needed to repent of being a sinner estranged from God, even a religious and a moral sinner. He needed to repent of all of these things and come to realize that he needed a Savior, and that Savior's name was the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many things today, and we're, like I say, truth is being divorced from reality, okay? That, that's a real problem, okay? Truth is that which conforms to reality, is one way you can define truth. So we're, we're, we're ministering in a culture that's made a separation. It's, sometimes the, they call it the operification of the society. Well, tell me what your truth is. Now, that's fine if that's your diagnostic question. If you're going to punch your holes in, in some relativistic, subjective uh, type of, uh, of truth, use it to point to the objective truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But truth is truth. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's truth. Okay, and so that's what we're seeking uh, to highlight and seeking uh, to, to point out. And so we call upon people to repent of sin. In other words, let's say that someone is uh, immoral. I'll just use a very broad and very general kind of term there. And uh, they, they, you know, somebody said, well, you know, God, God loves you and you know, has a wonderful plan for your life and all that. No. What? There must be repentance from that particular sin and all sin, okay? The, when we speak of the inclusiveness of the gospel, we're presupposing repentance, okay? Repentance of that which the Bible defines uh, as, as sin. So, this man has heard the gospel. He has believed the gospel. Now, why would he ask about baptism? Uh, there were ritual washings in ancient Judaism that, that were most likely performed on the proselytes, the Gentiles that came to the knowledge of the God of Israel. But he particularly asked about baptism. And my suspicion is that while in Jerusalem, uh, hanging around the outer courts of the temple, he had some exposure to the preaching of the, the apostles. Some exposure to the gospel and even some, maybe even a, a witness to Christian baptism. And so he very quickly goes, and I don't, I don't know if he had a, a very deep understanding of baptism, but again, he understands that I was kind of a, a second-tier kind of participant in the Old Covenant. But now, all of those barriers and all those distinctions, and I will be fully included in the people of God, and I want to bear witness to the reality that I have believed this gospel by the act of baptism. And so uh, he, uh, they go down into the water, and uh, often that, that's a, a kind of a, a, an apologetic uh, for uh, believers' baptism by immersion, and I think it's probably a, a reasonable one. And so they go down, and uh, Philip uh, baptizes the eunuch. One question that comes up as we see baptisms, particularly in the book of Acts, normally here at North Clay, Someone makes a profession of faith. They, they come to us and say, I, 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 believe, I believe the gospel. Or, or sometimes they come and say, I want to be baptized. And we put them through uh, quite a, a, a lengthy series of, of classes to see what they understand and then what they uh, believe. And so I'm pretty much a big fan of, of waiting uh, to be sure that they have a clear understanding of the gospel. But it seems like the universal pattern 
uh, in the early church was as soon as someone professed Christ, they were pretty quickly uh, baptized, okay? And so you can think about that, you can argue about it, but certainly in these initial moments, this man uh, was baptized. Now, if you'll notice, there is a, uh, a verse that might be missing. In my Bible, my, my translation goes from verse 36 to verse 38. There is a verse 37 that, uh, again, continues this, uh, this question. It reads something along this. Uh, if you believe with all your heart, uh, you may. Uh, and the unit responds, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of those uh, questions. I think it, that verse 37 is in the King James. Maybe some of you are using King James Bibles. It is in there. Uh, uh, the issue becomes an issue of manuscripts, and uh, the idea is the oldest manuscripts, the manuscripts they think are most faithful uh, to uh, the original, do not have that, and so most of the more modern translations actually leave it out. Now, there's nothing uh, aberrant about that, but it is probably something uh, a copyist, a scribe, uh, included at a, a later date. Now, if that troubles you, we can talk a little bit more about inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility and canon, canonicity and uh, all of these types of, of things. But, but I'm pretty much on board that, that probably uh, was, that Luke probably did not write verse 37 if it's included uh, in, in, your, in your Bible. But it is consistent with what went on and probably uh, either became something utilized as a bit of a baptismal uh, confessional formula or maybe was in some, some way already in place as some type of uh, creedal uh, statement. And so uh, the eunuch uh, is baptized, and I'm certainly a, 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 an advocate of believer's baptism by immersion. I believe the Bible's or, Bible is abundantly uh, clear on that. We can be in good fellowship with those that have a different view of baptism. Uh, they can just be wrong because we're so gracious, okay? And, and, and that's okay. There, there'll be a lot of people that, that uh, uh, are, are wrong. I, I had the opportunity of uh, uh, this week of, of reminding a, a dear friend uh, who we were in uh, you know, mild disagreement about something, and I alluded to a, a very good friend of mine that's with the Lord now that uh, we used to go to lunch and get in major league arguments, you know, in, in Jesus' name. And many of you remember Bobby Britt. He was just a, a dear friend to me. And I would tell Bobby, I said, now you, you realize that God's going to give you about a million years when we get to heaven. And all you're going to say is, Tim, you were right. Yeah, you, you, you were right, Tim. And so I, I kind of told one of our, our, our elders this week, you know, I, I'm sure that after Bobby gets finished telling me that, that God will give you a million years. And you can say, well, Tim, you were right. I was wrong. And that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. We've got eternity. We'll, we'll get around to all of those things. But uh, I'm very much convinced. And baptism is important. The tragedy that I've seen, and this refers to both the Lord's Supper and to baptism, that strangely enough, in Baptist churches, uh, we, we tend to downplay sometimes uh, the importance uh, of the, of, of the ordin ordinances. And they're both uh, very, uh, very important to the, the life of the church and the life of the individual who is a participant in these, uh, these ordinances. And so... The eunuch is baptized uh, because he has believed uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the truth of the matter is we don't know what happens to the eunuch. Uh, there's some church traditions that suggest that he went back to Ethiopia 
and he began to preach the gospel, and the gospel took root in Ethiopia. But the truth is, we, we really don't know, but presumably, he was genuinely converted uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the Spirit was at work, and as I said, in a very symbolic, symbolic way, but also in a very real way. Uh, the gospel is now going to the furthest reaches of the known world in the person of this converted uh, Ethiopian. And so we, we see there uh, in verse 39, after they came out of the water, this is an interesting thing. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. But he went on his way, or Andy went on his way rejoicing. So uh, the convert uh, knows now the joy of salvation, the, the joy of the Lord, and continues that journey, goes, goes presumably goes back home, faithfully discharges uh, his duties as the, the secretary of the treasury. But Philip is carried away, and, and that, that, that word carried away is the Greek word harpazo. And it's used in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 to speak of the believer being snatched away at what many times we refer to as, as the rapture. Again, the return of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and the translation of the believer uh, from the mortal to the immortal. And so I don't know if... Again, they just parted company, and uh, the Spirit was working powerfully in Philip, and he continued his journey in a different direction. Or in some supernatural way, he was literally uh, transported uh, into a different place. I don't know. I don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference in terms of the impact of the story. Whatever happened, I think the point is he did it in obedience to the work of the Spirit of God in him. The Spirit of God had worked to bring about conversion uh, in the eunuch. The Spirit of God had worked in Philip to go, uh, to proclaim, and now to go uh, further. And Philip continues the journey, and he continues preaching uh, the gospel. And evidently, finally arriving, uh, arriving in Caesarea, and he shall appear again in the book of Acts in a few uh, chapters. And so we see again in the book of Acts, the work of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. Uh, that is, there were faithful men who went and proclaimed the truth, and God was faithful uh, to take uh, that very truth and bring about uh, salvation. Uh, Philip had kind of that golden opportunity in that this man evidently was quite eager uh, to know the things that would bring peace uh, to his soul. Maybe, maybe uh, as he came to reflect upon Judaism, uh, he, he, he came to realize, well, you know, how, how does this uh, uh, gain for me eternal life? How does this bring satisfaction of the soul? What, whatever his questions were, uh, they weren't fully answered in Judaism, but they were answered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philip, again, through the, the illumination of the Spirit, I think he understood who he was speaking to as well. And I think that is an interesting charge uh, to us in that we're probably not going to encounter a lot of Ethiopian eunuchs. In fact, for most of us, we're not going to encounter a whole lot of atheists. Uh, the people that we're going to encounter are people that have, for the most part, and I'm not saying there's all kinds of people out there and you could encounter anybody at any time, most people are going to have some superficial knowledge of God, of Jesus, of the Bible, and salvation. 
And they may be very conversant about that. But the charge for us is to speak to them and quiz them, not so that we gain the knowledge. That's not uppermost. I mean, it's uppermost that they understand where they stand before holy God. That, that do they have a, an accurate understanding and have they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or do they have a defective understanding and are they indeed actually apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? And as I said, here, here in the South, most everybody has, has passed through a church at some point. I mean, it would be the rare individual. And I think most people would tell you that uh, they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is actually a true statement. Everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem is for those who do not know Him as Savior and Lord, it's a very bad uh, relationship. It is a relationship that should end badly for that individual. And so we need to understand the culture and how it's shaping people, their, their understanding, their presuppositions, and be ready to address it with the gospel. And uh, it's where some, maybe sometimes uh, some type of apologetics comes into view. This is how I know this is true, and this is why it's important for you. There's some merit in that. But we always need to remember, and this is, I think, in any opportunity, no matter how poorly you think it's going, and sometimes they do go very poorly, you want to make sure that you speak of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the reality of universal sin, our own sin, their sin, and the, way, the only way to address it, the only way to resolve that sin issue is through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, we simply have to do what? Trust the very Spirit of God to do what He will with the seed that we've planted. Uh, sometimes that seed may, may take years to come to fruition. But the Word will not return void. And the Spirit is never impotent. Okay? The Spirit will be at work as we share, as we teach, as we preach, as we proclaim the truth of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your gospel. We thank You that You chose to... Uh, Give us these testimony stories, these stories of uh, those that have gone. and uh, Lord, they have stood, they've stood bravely, they've stood bra uh, boldly, and they have communicated uh, your truth, uh, Lord. And we pray that we would be a people uh, that would believe your truth and that we would speak your truth and that you would be pleased to save many as we tell of what your son Jesus Christ has done. Uh, we ask that your spirit would be at work here today, doing only what you, your spirit can do. Uh, Lord, only you can convict, only you can convert, only you can comfort. And so we ask you to do those things. In Jesus' name, amen.